Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. In the mid-1940s, Ella Manuel traveled to the Codroy Valley of southwestern Newfoundland. Here she met people of Scottish descent whose forefathers had settled there years earlier. From the older residents, she hears something of the culture, music, and history of this distinctive community. The first time I journeyed south beyond the port port Peninsula to the valley called Codroy, it was 1945, just as the war was ending. I had to go by train, for the road had not yet been built. The valley is drained by two rivers. The Grand Codroy flows to the sea through a narrow gut where banks of sand and gravel continuously shift and make the entrance dangerous, but inside there is shelter from all winds. The Little Codroy flows into the sea about four miles south of the Grand, and between them are thousands of acres of rich land covered, especially on the valley sides, with birch, fir, spruce, and tamarack. Years ago, the Grand Codroy was navigable to large fishing vessels, and the harbor was well known to fishermen from Nova Scotia and other foreign parts. A visitor from Cape Breton in the 1870s wrote, quote, The land is scarcely surpassed by any of the lower provinces for its fertility. I took a survey of the vast and magnificent valley, unbroken by barrens and rocks, until the sight was lost amid the dark and gloomy forest, which, robed in its somber green, seemed to mourn the neglect in which the vale below was left." I arrived at a gloomy little place called Doyle's, hardly more than a whistle-stop, and with a clutch of houses surrounded by a thicket of stunted, twisted, and evergreen trees, which dripped sadly in the mist. In the gathering darkness of a late September evening, so inimical was the landscape that I felt a cold fear in my bones, a sense of being alien and rejected, a feeling that increased as the brightly lit train disappeared, and I was all alone on a little wooden platform. Presently a vintage Ford, its headlights comforting in the dusk, pulled up, and a deep voice said, You for Walters? He said to bring you. Jump in now. The car was already full, but the men somehow diminished their bulk, loaded me and my luggage and set off, bumping over the rutted road towards the river. Even in the growing dark I could see the hills rising above the broad, slow-moving river, in the middle of which were reedy islets. Yellow lamplight flicked from the windows of cottages set back from the road, patches of light across the black ploughed earth. This was farming country, and my fellow passenger smelled of cow and hay. Our driver said, Sandy seen a big bear this morning down by the block. I hope my youngsters don't hear about it till after they get the cows home. And the man next to him added, That wouldn't make any difference to my young'uns. There's not a bear in the world big enough to frighten them young savages. Oh, I wish there were. The car stopped. The driver said, Here's Walter's house, up there on the hill. Through that white gate and you'll find the path. As the noise of the car receded, I heard the wail of bagpipes. Never before had I really heard them, not from a distance out of doors, nor had I ever been farther north in Scotland than Loch Katrine. 
but in this moment I was transported to the Hebrides, as tales of them heard and read floated to the surface of my mind. Again I felt this alien sense, as if I did not belong to the landscape, or it to me. The music stopped. Walter's voice rang out. Hold on there, I'm coming. And he raced down the path and swooped up my luggage. Just trying out my pipes, he said. Gave them a drink of cold tea this morning. I laughed, being ignorant of the care and feeding of bagpipes. And never far away was laughter that long, gorgeous week that I spent with the Scots of Codroy. Walter's wife Mary and their two boys and two girls aged ten to two were waiting on the porch to usher me into the largest, most littered kitchen I've ever seen. Here, under the lamplight, at one of the tables were bottles of ink, saucers of paint, and stacks of scallop shells. On another were loaves of newly baked bread and a half-plucked fowl. In all the years since, I've never seen Mary's kitchen less cluttered. True, scallop shells have given way to modeling clay, clay given way to matte rags, Matt rags to manuscript paper in choirs and reams, and always Mary in the midst, creating. She's a Scot with a long, proud ancestry. Of medium height, she's buxom and dark with a smooth complexion and bright brown eyes. Her mouth is thin, belying the warmth of her spirit, and her wit is a byword among people whose every phrase is a barb. Currently, she was being addressed as Mrs. Pretty because of a letter she'd written in the newspaper, deriding the quality of potatoes from beyond the valley. Mary had bought a sack of imported spuds, only to discover that somebody had a grudge against them because their heads and tails were beat off, and when she cooked them, they came out a pretty shade of green. Her speech may have been pedestrian, but give her a pen and she could flay pretension, bigotry, and dishonesty. All of this I learned later. When I first saw Mary, she struck me as a harried housewife whose husband, in an excess of hospitality, had wished a strange woman on her for a whole week, but with the children asleep and the fowl plucked, Mary thawed. I have it all planned for you, she said, but I don't know how it will turn out, seeing that you're the first one who ever came to the valley to hear our music, and the boys are terribly shy. I asked them for tomorrow night, about ten of them and she repeated a litany of names that go back into Scottish history as far as the memory can reach. Tomorrow's Walter's day off, so I plan for him to take you fishing to Overfall Pool, and that'll give me time to get ready for the party, said Mary. Walter was manager of the local cooperative society and an ardent fisherman. I wanted nothing more than to cast for a salmon in the Overfall, except perhaps to hear the fiddles and bagpipes and Gaelic songs that Walter had promised me when I met him in the radio station a month earlier. That meeting was no accident. You see, I had earlier made a remark in a broadcast that Newfoundlanders sadly neglected their folklore and songs, and that remark had so incensed Walter that he came to contradict me, and to prove his contention he had invited me to the valley. The next day's fishing was memorable. Walter's family had provided for at least fifty years the most memorable guides in the valley, and Walter proved no less efficient. The river was low, the season late, and the main run had long since passed upstream. Still, we might hook the odd straggler if we're lucky, Walter remarked, and in any case you'll be able to say you fished the Grand River at last. The Grand Codroy River was really grand. At overfall it flowed swiftly over a razor-sharp ledge, directly into deep black pools. 
Walter, tall, loose-limbed, and sure-footed, dragged me across a frightening stretch to a riffle, at the far end of which was a boulder three feet or so out of water. This is where I come every day, he said. Fact is, I came the night before and I sat on the rock until daylight so nobody would beat me to it. That's the kind of fisherman Walter is, and unselfish too, for he gave me the best pool and all the benefit of his knowledge of the river. I landed a salmon eventually, and in my attempt to reach shore, tumbled into the deepest pool and was conveyed home on a railway speeder, every stitch of clothing dripping wet. Mary said later that it was the fly bites, the dirt, and the wet on me that endeared me to her friends, who were sitting a bulge in the kitchen when Walter and I arrived. I was evidently not a city slicker come to laugh at them. After greetings, they assembled their instruments, and shyly at first, then with enthusiasm and enjoyment, they began to play. Young Angus had a fiddle he'd made from a cigar box. Sandy had the oldest pipes in the country. Huey had a butter-smooth voice. I couldn't put out the cat in English till I was sixteen, he told me, because we had only the Gaelic in our house. And then there sounded a wild highland lament. The cosy Codroy sitting-room gave way to the dark, forbidding valley of Glencoe echoing to the call of battle and its wailing and sadness. That was the magic of drone and chanter. There was magic, too, in their fiddles that set feet twitching to tunes like Miss Drummond of Perth, Bonnie Lass of Bonacord, and The Road to the Isles. Mary asked them to play Flowers of the Forest, which was her favorite, but they weren't quite sure of the tune, and since I was the only one who could read music, they begged me to play it on the organ from an old songbook. They hummed and listened until Albert tucked his fiddle under his chin and tentatively bowed a note here and there until the pattern was firmly in his mind, and then the bagpipes took it up, and away they went, the melody sure and true. Old Huey, tall, spare, and white-haired, danced an ancient sword dance, Nine-year-old Eddie slipped behind him and imitated the steps with tremendous concentration until he could perform them alone. And then Huey and Sandy, he with the round red face as plump as Huey was lean, took between them a handkerchief and sang a milling song, the while performing the actions. Before I left the valley on that visit, Mary and Walter agreed with me that we had to find some way to bring the wealth of this music and dance out of the valley so everyone could enjoy it. So we arranged a concert, a Cayley, in Cornerbrook. Those who could leave cattle and field came in to perform, and we filled the parish hall for two nights and a third in Deer Lake. The music was good, and their pleasure in making it so evident that one forgot they were not seasoned stage performers. So where did all the Scottish culture come from? I asked my new friends. Well, from the highlands of Scotland via Cape Breton, they told me, and gradually I pieced the story together, going from one old Scot to another, prodding them to greater depths of memory by questions, hints, and above all, accounts of what their neighbors had told me. Of course, one would contradict another, each trying to uphold the honor of his family, each remembering only what redounded to the credit of his clan, so that some of the stories could never quite be reconciled to others. Still, it made a fascinating pattern, full of color and movement and beauty. My friend Mary's passion for family history was unique in a country where nobody cared much for where he came from as long as he knew where he was going, 
and she gave me the following story. In 1801, on a ship called the Dove of Aberdeen, there arrived in Nova Scotia a Scot named Donald O'Bangillis and his wife, a robust, vigorous woman. They settled on a farm in Cape Breton, near a place called Big Brook, and reared five sons and six daughters. Donald's grandfather, also named Donald, had fought with the clans in support of Bonnie Prince Charlie, including at the Battle of Culloden Moor. Of Donald Oban's many children, one, again named Donald, married Margaret O'Neill, and in the mid-1800s the two came to the valley, one of the first Scottish settlers. Neither the move nor the destination was without reason. The ninety-year-old granddaughter of Donald, the first settler, told me that her grandfather had left because they didn't want to stay when Cape Breton rejoined Nova Scotia. They had left Scotland in the first place to get away from persecution and poverty, and they didn't want it again. They thought for sure that life would be pretty hard for Roman Catholics when they joined up with Nova Scotia. Such an attitude came in part from the oath then administered in Nova Scotia to members of the Legislative Council. They were then required to swear that, quote, I do believe that the invocation or adoration of the Virgin Mary or any other saint and the sacrifice of the Mass as they are now performed in the Church of Rome are superstitious and idolatrous, unquote. You could hardly expect staunch Highland Catholics to welcome that sort of thing. Uh, incidentally, when Confederation with Canada was the burning issue in 1948, an old Scot in the valley thundered out at a public meeting, Donald Oban led your fathers out from slavery. Let you not lose what he gained for you. But despite the warning, the valley voted solidly for union with Canada. Now the first Donald, being a fisherman as well as a farmer, must often have fished along the coast of Newfoundland, and he must often have been driven to the sheltered lower reaches of the Cordroy River. No doubt he ventured farther up the river on one of his visits and found a country very like his grandfather's homeland. The valley, broad and lush, is beautiful always, but on a misty evening when the mountains loom and the crevices blacken, you can see the pass of Glencoe and Loch Lomond rolled into one. So having left Cape Breton with his wife and young children, he sailed up the river until he came to the gentle sloping banks of its middle reaches. There he paced off a hundred acres or so of rich land and claimed it for the Gillis homestead. He was alone in the valley for the first year, except for a band of Mi'kmaq and one English family, but soon his Scots neighbors joined him, and the valley was peopled with MacIsaacs, Bruce's, and MacDonald's. Hugh MacLean came too and helped himself and his five boys to two miles of land between two brooks. All this was told to me by Mary MacDonald in her lilting voice, sitting in her rocking chair, hands folded, supremely contented. I remember my grandfather well, she said. Six feet tall he was, and a giant of a man, dark and handsome too. He taught us our catechism in Gaelic, and every Sunday and Lent day he would get out his big Gaelic prayer book and read to us. He never spoke English that I can recall, though we children learned it when we got a schoolmaster here. I can remember, too, how happy my grandmother was when they commenced to build a church and a priest came to visit. Grandfather told us that when his first two babies were born in the valley, grandmother cried because they couldn't be baptized. So when the second was old enough, he bundled a lot of them into a schooner and they went over to Cape Breton to a priest. 
One of the babies was my father, said Mary MacDonald. She married Joseph, a carpenter, and had sixteen children herself. Not satisfied with that number, she adopted two more. I was used to large families when I was growing up, she told me. There was a big crowd of us, and then there were my uncles and aunts, and some of them not much older than we children. How I remember my Uncle John. Wasn't he the lad? He grew to be bigger than father and grandfather, and when he was a young man, his favorite pastime was jumping out of one puncheon into another without touching. You try that sometime. The best tales about John, the lad, came not from Mrs. MacDonald, but from Mr. Bruce, older by two years than she. Huey, on his day off from road mending, offered to take me to visit him. As we walked up the long lane to the Bruce house, Huey said, pointing to the roof, Will you just look at him, all of ninety-two and him up mending the roof? Well, now, I'll be off when I've introduced you. He'll talk better without me around. Mr. Bruce swung down the ladder and smiled to show as fine a set of natural teeth as you'd find anywhere. He could hear a pin drop and could see near and far without spectacles. He acknowledged the introduction and led me into his house. Before my feet were over the step, he began, Now the first thing I have to tell you is that we are Scots, though I'm sure there are some who told you we're not. Now some will say that our true name is Broussard, or some such, and that we changed it to get into the valley, but I will tell you why we spoke the French and not the Gaelic. You see, there was a Bruce man who fought with his clan beside the Bonnie Prince. He fought well, and at the end of the wars he had to go away from Scotland because his life was in danger. He crossed over to France, to Saint-Malo, and there married a French woman. Of course, he had to speak French, and so did his children. But that didn't make him a Frenchman. When his children grew up, one of them came to the Grand Banks to fish for cod. Now you know about Saint-Pierre down on the south coast. French it's been right from the start. Well, that's where this Bruce man went. Mr. Bruce filled his pipe, watching me from the corner of his eye to see how I was taking all this. And then he went on. At this French-speaking Bruce came over to Codroy Island one summer, for Codroy Island was then always French, no matter who owned the shore. They could fight all they liked about that. Well, on this island, Bruce met a fine, handsome woman from Quebec, who had come over on her father's schooner. So he married her, and settled back down in Saint-Pierre. His son John it was, who first came up into the valley, and he married a Maclean woman. They were my father and mother, and were just as Scottish as the Gillises or anyone else. And another thing, all this about leaving Cape Breton because of religion and freedom and all that. Haven't you stopped to think about free land? Well, I, I just heard the story yesterday, I told him, and really haven't had time to think about it at all. Well, you should. Not mind you that I'm saying they didn't want freedom, but just remember the state of this country then. The French didn't own it, nor did the English, if you make a fine point of it. Meantime, there was all this good land belonging to nobody, no grants asked for, none given, so a man could be sure that if he took a hundred acres or so, cleared them and planted them, when the time came for grants, he wouldn't be turned away. Some of the first settlers finally paid thirty cents an acre for their land, and others got it for nothing. After a cup of tea, and before I left, I asked if I might come back another day to hear more about the early days in the valley. Certainly, he replied, as long as I'm not in the middle of an important job. When one day rain and high winds kept them indoors and away from an important job, I visited Mr. Bruce once more. 
His kitchen this time was overflowing with life and activity. His granddaughter washed sheets in a huge galvanized tub. His great-grandchildren played at trains on the floor with saucepan lids, and his grandson worked with hammers and nails on a battered chest. Bruce took me to the inside room, furnished with a new sofa and matching chairs of red with threads of sparkling gold. Handsome, isn't he? he asked with obvious pride. I bought it out of the catalogue. No duty either. Might at some comfort to get things from Canada without paying duty. Seems to me that business was half what was wrong with our country. Duty on everything, even food, and for such a long time, too. Now you take John Gillis now. If he didn't have a terrible time with smuggling when he was made the first custom officer here in the valley. I asked Mr. Bruce if he himself had figured large in one of John Gillis's big cases, as I had been told. Oh, yes, the story of the schooner from St-Pierre. I was only a boy then, but I remember it well. It was shortly after the Newfoundland government put a duty on spirits. Before that time, I don't think they even knew they had a West Coast. Anyhow, they made John a customs officer, and when his three-master put into Codroy Harbor, he decided she was carrying rum, so he impounded her. Well, how on earth do you impound a schooner, I asked. Easy. You take her sails, hide them away, and then she's helpless. We thought for sure this one was, because John locked the sails in his store loft. That night I couldn't sleep very well. I had a toothache, so I got up and looked out the window. The moon was just coming up, and there was a light breeze. What should I see then but some men skulking along the road, carrying a big bundle of canvas? They went down on the wharf and got aboard the schooner. So I hauled on my clothes and run up the road as fast as I could go. I banged and banged on John Gillis's door, and by and by he opened it. I was that out of breath. All I could say was, The Frenchman got the sails! The Frenchman got the sails! And then John let out a roar of rage and frightened the dog so much he leaped out the window. Well, by the time John got down to the land wash, the last sail was going up and the schooner was under way. He raced back up the road, banging on doors and shouting. Four men, all as big as John and just as mad, jumped in the dory with him and took after the vessel. Well, that must have been an epic race. A three-master in a light breeze with a half-hour start on a dory manned by four oarsmen. But they won and as they came alongside the schooner, they threw a grapnel over her rail and clambered aboard. They fought with fists, oars, and boat hooks, and overcame the Frenchman and brought the schooner back to Codroy. That was the night Sandy Joe discovered his head was softer than an ash oar, and Andrew Gillis had his lips split from nose to chin. I was there when they came back. Forgot all about my toothache, I did. And still, they were not sure what she had in her hold. Since the French skipper would not take the tarpaulin off the hatches, John decided then and there to remove the covers himself. By this time the moon was well up, and it was light enough to read by. The boys went down in the forward hole and came up with a big barrel. They rolled it down the gangway and up the hill right up to the schoolhouse door. John called his four friends by name to come inside, and the rest of us went home. The next day the story went out that the so-called jury sat round the stove and sipped. One glass, silence. Another glass, no verdict. After the third large swig, John smacked his lips and pronounced solemnly, Dom good room, and they all went home feeling very righteous. Well, you couldn't have been a very peaceable lot, I suggest. Peaceable, my dear woman, they were the worst lot of fighters you ever heard tell of. 
down by Codroy, out at the end of the valley, there was an open field where they used to have fights regularly. I can remember one when Alan MacArthur's grandfather fought Louis Collier. He was an Englishman from Codroy Village, over something that happened at the dance. They fought all day, practically naked they were, until Collier won the fight. But not before MacArthur ripped all the skin off Collier's ribs with his knuckles. They fought with the English, with strangers, and sometimes with each other. You take that bonfire night business. Of course, I know that most everyone now has forgotten why they have it, but in my day there wasn't a Catholic didn't remember about Guy Fawkes, nor a Protestant who didn't remember what the Catholics almost did. Feelings ran pretty high, I can tell you. Once I went with five boatloads of Catholics and cleaned up on twelve families of Protestants down shore. I won't tell you where because I'm ashamed of it now, but I'm only telling you so as you can know what times were like then. Do you mind my asking you about those times? I queried. No, for sure I don't. I think it's a good thing for someone to dig into our old minds. The days we knew when we were young were hard ones, but they were good too in many ways. We were contented and we had plenty of fun. I dare say we did some wicked things too, but I don't suppose that will be held against us too much at the Day of Judgment. And when you get to be as old as me, you do a lot of dreaming and remembering. You begin to see how all that happened to you and those that went before goes into your children. And if they don't know their history, how can they know themselves? So I thank you for all your questions. And now, said the old man, you being a radio person, would you write down these stories for to put in our family Bible? Newly aware of the great value the Codroy people place on their proud past, I said I would. And now I've done so. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. And tune in to the next episode in which El Emanuel joins the chase for herring in port port Bay.